Better Call Saul Season 2 Episode 6 is over, but we're just getting started here on the Better Call Saul post-show recap. And now, here are the two guys who are sitting back with an ice-cold Moscow mule. I'm Rob Sestrino. Here's Antonio Mazzaro. Antonio, how are you? Rob, this copper mug. It's real copper. It's delicious. Delicious. This is great. The ginger yes. beer is mwah. Oh, there's nothing like fresh ginger to spice your life up either, Rob. I got to tell you, mm. it's perfect. Yeah, it's great. Well, Antonio, another exciting night on Better Call Saul as uh, this Mike storyline has really kicked into high gear. Some intrigue with uh, Jimmy and Kim as per usual, but really the Mike story is really at another level right now. Yeah, I, business picked up, I'd say, Rob. This is, uh, where do you, how do you dial it back from there? What are we going to do next? Oh my God, that's the cousin's music. <laughs> oh my God, they're attacking him. What are they going to do? Who's coming out of the back? Yeah, this is crazy. This is, this is the cousins coming into the story and, and showing up on a rooftop, Rob, pointing guns or finger guns from a rooftop. Finger this guns. Is terrifying. Terrifying yes. business. Perhaps one of the most menacing finger guns of all time. Yeah, uh, right up there. What are some of the other menacing finger guns? I'm trying to think. Like, uh, who's Shooter McGavin? Pretty pretty menacing finger guns for Shooter McGavin? <laughs> certainly. Certainly. That's yeah. how I got that nickname. Exactly. That's not, it doesn't, doesn't come about it dishonestly. He's a shooter. So, yeah, that's that terrifying with the cousins. And they've got the same boots, Rob. Uh, this is just, uh, I don't know. This is like David Brent level finger guns from the British office. This yeah. is something that you, you don't want to take very long. Cousins did not change their luck really at any point over the five to ten years that this whole timeline takes place. No, it's a timeless look. You know, bald head, shaved suit, uh, studded, skull studded shiny boots. Suit. Yeah, shiny suit. The shiny suit. This is perfect. This is a timeless look. Yeah. I mean, their dry cleaning bills must be just through the roof to keep those suits so shiny, but it's worth it. Yeah, they save on barber bills. So it comes out in the wash, quite literally. Barber Bill was the name of the guy that used to cut my hair in college. Is that true? What happened to Barber Bill? <laughs> I, I think he's probably uh, gone the way <laughs> of uh, some of these other Breaking Bad characters. Oh, uh, no. Sadly, I mean, I think he was like, uh, you know, an older guy in 1997. Oh, R.I.P. Barber Bill. Is that you didn't think they bar- you think they bury a barber in a barber chair? <laughs> I doubt it. I don't think they bury anybody in a chair. Yeah, that's probably true. You're probably right about that. <laughs> I think we're getting a little off track here. Yeah, we're getting a little off track here. But no, this is, uh, you know, cousins have a good look. Shiny suit, shiny head, shiny boots, uh, and really just sort of terrifying menace. I I like that the cousins are are the, the full measure. The half measure, you send these dopes into the house who Mike gets the drop on. We'll talk about that. The full measure is you send the cousins on the rooftop with the finger guns. Yeah. So we got a lot to break down tonight. Of course, uh, we are through six episodes, still four more to go. Make sure you're signed up for the Better Call Saul podcast or at least the full post show recaps podcast. Uh, you could search for it on iTunes. Either go to postshowrecaps.com slash BCS iTunes for our Better Call Saul only feed or postshowrecaps.com slash iTunes and get the full, full measure Post show full measure. And of yeah, course, we're going to take your questions later on in this show and all the things that we got from the Facebook page. So 
a lot of stuff to you talk through tonight after a very interesting episode, Antonio. Yeah, and and this is again in keeping with what we've seen a lot of in Better Call Saul this season. We have the sort of slow Jimmy is not adjusting well. Maybe even Kim is having some issues with this sort of finding their way in the legal world. Uh, and Mike is just sort of traipsing through the underworld, one Billy Mays commercial at a time. So yeah. they're doing a great job of transitioning into the Breaking Bad kind of stuff with Mike. And I hope that that's keeping people who want Jimmy to go full Saul Goodman. I hope that that's keeping them interested in what's happening with Jimmy as that transition happens a little more slowly. Well, Jimmy was like nowhere to be found for a good 30 minutes in this episode where we opened on Jimmy and then we went away from Jimmy for a really long time up until the point that uh, he showed back up in the episode. Yeah. And I look, it, it doesn't, it wasn't to the detriment of the episode. I don't think it was to the detriment of Jimmy. I think it's to the benefit of this show that you can build up people like Kim, that you're really making her into a supporting character. And you've got Mike, who you've already kind of made that investment in, not only with Breaking Bad, but also with episodes like 5 0 from last season, so that you can spend a lot of time with Mike and still be perfectly happy with the show. It's good for this show to have a deep bench, even though it's called Better Call Saul. Deep bench is good. I mean, I think you could argue that Kim has had as much airtime in season two as Jimmy has. Yeah, and I think that that's great because I think that Ray Sayhorn is certainly up to the task of delivering an interesting performance uh, and bringing kind of the the drama out of what is a pretty typical and boring sort of legal kind of career story. Uh, she's doing great and, and doing really interesting stuff. Uh, and I think it's to the benefit of Jimmy to have this foil or this love interest, whatever role she's happening to play, uh, because it will ultimately make what we think is going to come in their relationship that much more tragic that much more interesting and impactful that you've got a fully realized three-dimensional character like him and not just this, you know, singular love interest that we had maybe a couple of interactions with that. We've got a full character here. Uh, it's going to make the story so much better as they go forward. So it's good. It's investment is worth it. So Jimmy and Kim, will talk through everything going on there, but I guess we, we have to start with Mike because that was really the most uh, heart pounding scenes from this episode had to do uh, with him and ultimately how the cousins from Breaking Bad, and I know that there are some people who have not watched Breaking Bad, but I don't know how we talk about the cousins here without getting into Breaking Bad lore, Antonio. Yeah, we, we have to get into the lore for sure. We'll try not to spoil directly uh, some of the key points. Like we, we're, we're, we're being cognizant of those of you who only watch The Better Call Saul. Although Breaking Bad's on Netflix. Make the time. It's really worth it. But yeah, we'll, we'll definitely get into the Breaking Bad lore. Here and the Sundance sure. channel is airing it. Yeah, three episodes in a row sometimes. Three yeah. or four. I saw that on Happen Leonard, Rob, <laughs> so which we I. talked about here on most shows <laughs> recapped last week. So we're on the same page. And so really we've gone from that we had the return of Tuco and then we had Hector show up last week and now here are the cousins. Were you surprised to have the cousins show up this quickly after Hector showed up last week? Well, uh, the the preview from last week did show the skull boot. So it wasn't a total shock like Hector walking in was last week. But uh no, I think that this is great. This is clearly we said it a couple of episodes ago. The reason you don't shoot Tuco Salamanca 
is that a whole bunch more Salamancas are going to come crawling out of the woodwork. The problem is, if you don't take the full measure and you decide to go with, with what Mike did, which is take the half measure, then they show up anyway. Uh, and so it was pretty natural that when Hector showed up kind of playing the, the nice old man, oh, you're so, you know, you're, you're, this will be good. He's my nephew. I'm sorry this happened. This is, this is Hector last week. This week, Hector is a very different Hector. And, uh, and of course, the cousins are in play too because business picks up this week for sure. So let's just talk through this chronologically and then we'll get to where do we go from here. So Mike ends up getting a warning on his doorstep like, hey, take the money. He says no. And he ends up building some sort of a very uh, MacGyver-esque security system where he puts carbon paper underneath the welcome mat to see if anybody has walked in. Do you like this idea, Antonio? Do, not only do I like it, Rob, I'm doing it tomorrow. <laughs> this is fantastic. This is a great little burglar alarm. I remember in the movie, in the book Misery, I think she tapes hairs across things to see if he's opened them up. I always thought that was a little crazy and I wasn't sure if it would work. Uh, but I, I'm pretty sure there's carbon paper under your welcome mat. I wondered, I said, why is Mike rolling out the welcome mat when I saw him doing it? I was like, this is a very un-Mike thing to do, to literally tell people coming to his house, welcome, come on in. But yeah, this is great. The carbon paper uh, burglar uh, detection system. It's fantastic. It's a good thing they sent two people. So he didn't think if like, okay, well, I guess the UPS guy was here. I guess that, you know, you've probably figured out that he didn't get any packages that day. Yeah. Jehovah's Witnesses came by. Right. There weren't any Girl Scouts going door to door selling cookies. We didn't see any tiny little footprints. Uh, We saw a couple sets of very clear, uh, you know, this is, uh, these are men that had, that were standing there. Uh, Maybe they, maybe, you know, maybe they don't, don't go to the front door. Maybe they find a back door that they can break into his place, you know, out of prying eyes. But uh, this is great. Uh, This is just a really, a, a smart, cheap burglar alarm. Who needs ADT, Rob? This is easy. Yeah. And so then Mike, he does a whole sort of sweep of the house, very dramatic moment. And then he ends up sort of realizing that the guys are hiding in the closet or whatever that other room is. And he ends up switching on the TV. And then what does he put on the TV? What is that? How to get away with murder? <laughs> if only. No, it's Billy Mays, Rob. It's oh. Billy Mays. Yes, it's Billy Mays. This is uh, this is my man, Billy Mays. I once went uh, for Halloween dressed as Billy Mays, Rob. Yeah, that was a yeah. long way for an inside joke. Yes, it really was. It really was. But that's okay. You didn't take me down with it. We're good to go. This is not Frank from How to Get Away with Murder. This is Billy Mays. <laughs> uh, this is like, you know, if we're doing the evolution of man, he's, you know, a couple spots over to the left from Frank uh, on that same chart. But yeah, this is Billy Mays. And yeah, I love Billy Mays, Rob. Billy Mays knows how to what he, he called it balleting a tip, which I think is a uh, carnival, carnival barker slang. He knows how to bring the people in. You know, you put Billy Mays on the TV. It's almost like moths to flame. People come right out of the other rooms. <laughs> I want to see what that is in the TV. What's this amazing product that's being sold? So yeah, it's great. This is great. <laughs> well, Mike could have used some OxyClean after he got that cut <laughs> on his hand. And he, uh, you know, b- do you have blood on your gun? Get OxyClean. Yeah, you don't need a cabinet full of cleaners. Yeah, this is great. Like, this is this is fantastic. The OxyClean. Yeah, this is a great test. There's a lot of Billy Mays products <laughs> that Mike could probably use in his various day-to-day experiences. So, oh my gosh. R.I.P. <laughs> Billy Mays. We lost a legend. The day the music died, Rob. The day <laughs> the music died when Billy Mays left us. The day the commercials died. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, Matt Coleman, Matt Coleman had tweeted at us. You know, he knew, I must know I'm a big Billy Mays fan. He said, after this Better Call Saul, uh, you know, 
know, he wanted to know, did the infomercial help us decide what year this is? And the answer, Matt Coleman, is no. Billy Mays is timeless. You can't pin a year down with mm-hmm. a Billy Mays infomercial. It could be any time. We love Billy Mays. We know it's post-1999. Yes, we do know it's post-1999. We have that labeled down. And we know it's pre-whenever Billy Mays died, which I have to I have to lift up my shirt and look at my tattoo uh, to see what his death date was. Well, June 2009. So, uh, yeah. So, it's before that. <laughs> yeah. Did they stop airing the Billy Mays stuff after he died? Uh, I'm mostly. You've got Anthony Sullivan here. His friend uh, Tony Sullivan has taken over a lot of his work. You may know Anthony Sullivan from some of his... Uh, he's doing the OxyClean pitches now, but he's done a lot of the other pitches uh, that Billy Mays kind of was, was doing some of the cleaning products and what have you. So... They had a show that was actually a really good reality show that was on TV a while called The Pitchmen. I think it had two seasons uh, where they kind of went behind the scenes of the pitches and the commercials they were shooting and talked about the theories behind how they were constructing their pitches and why it worked. And I thought it was really, really fun. All right. Well, then Mike ends up then telling those guys like, hey, get out of here. Come on. Leave me alone. And so uh, he says, <laughs> no, thanks, but no, thanks. He's not going to take the offer. But then he's at the pool party with Kaylee. And then he ends up uh, seeing the cousins over on the roof. Hard to miss the cousins, though, in the reflective suits. Yeah. I mean, you can see them shining off of the pool. <laughs> you can feel the air gun firing at you in the air. You can see the light shining off their bald heads. There's yeah. just no missing these guys. They could bicycle at nighttime and they'd be fine. <laughs> Yeah, they probably do. They they could crawl across the desert in with a in a moon on a not a moonless night, and we would still see them. Rob, did they ever explain what that meant? No, I think that was like sort of a pilgrimage, like the the you know, like the let's just uh, suffer a little bit and crawl through the desert to the shrine, and when we get there, we'll make our offerings, having suffered on the way. Sort of like a uh, you know the Stations of the Cross or things like that. But correct me if I'm wrong, that the cousins are in Mexico at the start of Breaking Bad. Yes, yeah they they seem to be the, these these kind of guys who uh, who do business on both sides of the border, uh, who only come to the states when business uh, that kind of business needs to be done in the states, and they're they're really the kind of hired guns. And that scene, I do believe, takes place in Mexico. Mm-hmm. So uh, we'll see ultimately if the events from Better Call Saul ultimately lead them to have to flee to Mexico to set up why they're in Mexico at the start of Breaking Bad. But ultimately, we end up with Mike going to a meeting with Hector, with the cousins, with Nacho. And basically, they tell him that no more of this deal. If you don't go say the gun is yours, then we're going to end up uh, killing your daughter-in-law and your granddaughter. And Mike says, I hate Give me fifty thousand dollars. Yeah, no problem. Fifty k. I know yeah. you said five. Add a zero, baby. Mike having no problem negotiating from a position of weakness. Yeah, look, your your nephew beat me up. I get it. I want fifty thousand dollars. Yeah, Hector said no. Hector says no, but he also admires Mike's uh, huevos. I think is what he says, Rob. Yeah, uh, yeah. And so this is uh, this is great. And fifty uh, k. It is. He walks out with the fifty k, Rob. Right. Were you surprised they let Mike keep the gun there? Because then he ends up saying like, hey, I'm going to end up killing you if you don't end up giving me the money. Like, ah, okay, this guy is good. I think that Hector, like I, I it, it just seems like a lot of people. Nacho has done this the most, I think. I think people are sort of taken aback by Mike because Hector remarks, how did you live this long with a mouth that big? Like, how did you get to this point with the kind of cockiness and, you know, sure of yourself kind of presentation that you make. And I, I think that on some level, it's like 
leave the gun. Like, let him have the gun. I'm, I'm interested to see where he goes with this. Like, I don't know. Is he going to pull it out? Is he going to shoot the ceiling? Is he going to shoot us all? But I'm curious because I've never seen a guy that isn't scared by this scenario that we're putting him in. So let's just see what happens. Let's see how this plays out. Say, I like his chutzpah. Yeah, that's a that's a word Hector would use for sure. He's a big Yiddish guy. <laughs> <laughs> and so, okay, so finally they agree to the $50,000 and then Nacho at the end of the episode, uh, he delivers the money to Mike. But Mike says, uh, here, let me give you my, your money back. Yeah. Uh, and this is this is, I think, why Mike is, uh, you know, StorySync presented this as Mike's good criminal, bad criminal moment from the episode. We know that speech that Mike gave to the play, uh, uh, Mr. Wormler, uh, Mr. Price. Where he said, like, you're a criminal now, whether you're a good criminal or a bad criminal, that's up to you. You know, where he gave him that big speech. And mm-hmm. this is Mike saying, fair's fair. I made a deal with you. It didn't work out the way that I told you it would work out. So I'm giving you your money back. Yeah. And I think Nacho is very impressed by this. He was very impressed because I was wondering this on the podcast uh, last week of like, is Mike double dipping here with the $5,000? But ultimately, so what did Mike get up front from Nacho. Mike got the, I think Mike got 25K from Nacho for what happened with Tuco. So now he's got a second 25K. So Mike's up 50K, even though that he did get his ass beat in pretty good. That's right. Yeah. He got a, he turned a 25K butt whooping into a 50K butt whooping Mike and, or Mike did. And I think that that, you know, I think that there's nothing wrong with that. He, he is up 50K now. And uh, I don't know. Maybe he just needs to, uh, what's he going to do with that 50K to m- turn it into a hundred is what I want to know. If he needed to get beat up uh, and then threatened by a, a, a drug cartel kingpin, uh, I really, you know, I'm really concerned about what he's going to do to make that 50K into a hundred. So let's speculate here now. So it seems as though everything is okay. I mean, that Mike seems like he's in good now with Hector and the cousins. He's going to go to the police and say the gun was his. What's going to go wrong here? We still got four episodes left in this season. Honestly, I don't think that anything's going wrong with this plan. I think that the, I think the next step is for Nacho to put him on to somebody else or for uh, or for that, you know, the, to kind of naturally progress their relationship we thought, I think, during season one on this podcast, that the relationship that was going to progress was the relationship between Nacho and Jimmy. Uh, Nacho met Jimmy in the desert, saw him kind of play out the 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 trial of the uh, the twin brothers, right. and, and and negotiate the plea there uh, to the from the death penalty to a couple of broken legs. And uh, and Nacho was impressed by Jimmy. So when Nacho needed kind of Jimmy to do some dirty work for him. He came to get him and Jimmy wasn't, wasn't interested. Nacho gave him his number and basically said, you, you call me when you find out who you are. When that went South, Nacho was, had a, had a bone to pick with Jimmy at that point And basically said, you ratted me out. Like I'm going to this, you're going to pay for this one way or the other. And we thought Nacho and Jimmy's relationship would be the relationship that took this show into the criminal underworld. I think the Nacho and Mike relationship is one to keep our eyes on. Nacho can't really do anything in the light of day with Mike because Mike's now connected to the whole Tuco thing. But what can Nacho do behind the scenes uh, in the kind of hidden kind of underworld kind of thing? I think we know Nacho wants to run a side business on this crew. So I think Mike is going to be a key player with that uh, as, as time evolves here. Now, Mike has this very interesting storyline going on, and Jimmy has an intriguing storyline going on. But to me, I see almost no connection between the two. The one time we had sort of an interaction between what Jimmy was doing and what Mike was doing, where they ended up bringing in Jimmy to be Price's lawyer and going to the police. Do you see a way that you're getting Jimmy and or Kim and anything they're doing, Sandpiper, HHM, what's the connective tissue 
between that story and what's going on with Mike on the other side of the aisle. Yeah, I mean, I don't know that there is any direct connective tissue at all. Like, I don't see the Sandpiper and HHM and Davis and Maine story dovetailing into into something that involves Mike. But I see Mike's stories kind of spiraling into a place where Mike might need to call Jimmy. If you'll recall, the kind of first call that Mike put out to Jimmy was when Mike needed Jimmy to help get him out of the the jam with the Philly cops in season one and do the spill of coffee and say, I, you know, how'd you know I would spill the coffee, you know? And then season two, Mike calls Jimmy when he needs help getting Wormler out of trouble with the uh, squat cobbler. <laughs> and so Jimmy's kind of Mike's go-to, you know, skeezy lawyer, if you will. And when you're, when you're involved in kind of these backdoor underworld kind of dealings, I think you're going to need to call a guy like that uh, more often than not, certainly a couple of times a season. So I think that whether there's not any connective tissue between what Jimmy's doing right now and what Mike's doing, I think what Mike's doing is going to, by necessity, involve Jimmy at some point, just by Mike giving him a call and saying, I need your help. How about the cousins? Do you think that they have more work to do here in season two? Uh, no, I don't necessarily think that uh, that they've got more work to do here in season two. I think that they are the kind of guys that are the muscle that float back and forth between the border. I think once Mike does the deal here and gets Tuco out of this situation that Tuco's in and Tuco just does a little bit less time and everything works out that way, I think the Mike and, and Salamanca stories are done for now. That doesn't mean the Mike and Nacho stories are done, but I think this was a one shot for the Cousins. I would be surprised to see the Cousins in any time in the rest of this season. I feel like it seems like a waste to just have them come here and be one and done. Well, it gets people. It continues to keep people talking about Breaking Bad cameos. It keeps them in the universe. It makes you realize that they are out there. They could come back at any time. Uh, it does feel a little bit like a waste. I mean, we didn't get a one and done with uh, Tio Salamanca, uh, and I do wonder whether whether uh, you know Uncle Salamanca there, uh, Hector, is involved in some way uh, the rest of the season. Uh, is he going to step into Tuco's shoes? Is he going to be Nacho's business partner? Is he was he so impressed with Mike? that he's going to want to be involved with Mike again somehow. He's intrigued by this guy. He's going to keep tabs on this guy. That's a possibility. But I just don't know where the cousins uh, are in that. Because the cousins, I think the benefit for them is this silent menace. And one of the things with the cousins in Breaking Bad was once you introduce them to the story, that was not a full season's worth of menace. Like, you had to have that pay off relatively quickly because they, they were just such this intimidating force that they weren't just going to sit quietly by while a whole season unfolded. And I think the same, th- th- same thing goes with them here. When the danger's around, they're around, but they're only going to be around when the danger's really out. They are the danger. They are the danger, yeah. Do you want to talk at all about foreshadowing with the cousins and where they end up going in their ultimate fate in this universe? Yeah, just to say that um, that you know they, they come back into the Breaking Bad universe as those who have watched Breaking Bad know uh, that Mike ultimately does interact with the cousins in one shape, way, shape, or form uh, the second time around on Breaking Bad. And I think knowing what we know about Mike and the cousins from Better Call Saul now, I think that that puts some of those interactions in a, in a different light. Uh, and I think really it adds a lot of uh, color to what ultimately uh, becomes of the story between Mike and uh, his involvement with the cousins in Breaking Bad. I think knowing what we know now from a prequel standpoint about this interaction Mike had with them here where they directly threatened uh, his granddaughter, uh, I think it, it makes what happened with Mike and the cousins in Breaking Bad uh, a lot richer and uh, certainly worth a second look for sure. But I think, could you speak to that too? I know that there are some people who have not watched Breaking Bad. Maybe they want to tune out for the next two or three minutes, but I think that that is a uh, very, it's an important detail details there to uh, 
harken back to. Sure, let's do it. So if you have you if you did not uh, if you did not watch Breaking Bad, just give us two or three minutes here, uh, and we'll, we'll not be talking about the cousins when you skip ahead. But but yeah, what it comes down to, of course, is the cousins show up to shoot Hank, uh, or they show up to take out Walt ultimately, and they're pulled away by Gus sending them a text message. Uh, then they have the showdown with Hank. We don't you have one minute. The you know, one minute. Yeah, you have one minute. We don't really know who that call is at the at the initial point. Uh, and there's a great showdown in the parking lot. One of the cousins gets shot by Hank, killed. The other cousin gets run into with Hank's car and sort of cut off at the waist. His legs are broken. He ends up in the hospital. While he's in the hospital, he recognizes Walter White and he starts losing his mind, pulling at his IVs and everything. Eventually, this guy has a heart attack and dies in the hospital. And we only later learn that that heart attack was caused by an injection given to him by Mike. And so Mike ultimately does get a little bit of poetic justice revenge on the cousin that lived uh, in the hospital by giving him the injection uh, that ultimately leads to his demise. Uh, and that is that's great because that you find out that Gus is the one that sanctions that that adds to the storyline between Gus and the cartel. But now we know that it's not just a Gus versus cartel thing, that this is also a, uh, a Gus uh, you know, a Mike versus the cousins kind of thing that was playing out there. And that's all in like Breaking Bad season three, episode four, five, six. So it really plays out in episode eight. I see you uh, is where the, the stuff is revealed about why Gus would have would have stopped that. Yeah, I'm sure we will come back to Mike. But let's get into this uh, Jimmy and Kim stuff uh, from this episode. Where do you want to start? Want to start talking through Jimmy or Kim? Well, I think we should start with the title of the episode because I think that that is a that is a pretty key tie-in uh, to all of this, and it sort of frames the entire kind of interactions that they have with each other uh, and they have with their kind of situations. Uh, Mike Bloom had emailed us some questions about this and some facts. Mike Bloom, I don't know if you know this about Mike Bloom. Post show recaps on Mike Bloom. Rob, uh, Mike Bloom's a big musical theater nerd. Did you know that? I think I've heard that somewhere. Just somewhere. It's just not something that he wears all over uh, his interactions in most. In I, most may, I may have heard that once or twice. Yeah. So this is a Mike Bloom, a resident musical theater nerd. Josh Wiggler might have to death bowl fight him for the title on that one. But uh, but yeah, I'm, I'm a big musical theater guy too. Bally High is the title of the episode. It's a song from South Pacific. It is the song that Jimmy sings on the answering machine to Kim in this episode. Kim has a love of old films. We've already seen that uh, kind of play out throughout this season. The Ice Station Zebra reference keeps coming back as mm-hmm. one of her favorites. She's got the posters on her wall in her house. She has a love of old films. And so the South Pacific thing is probably a movie that she likes. But the song Bally High, as Mike points out, it's a song sung by a native named Bloody Mary who's trying to convince Lieutenant Cable to come onto the land of a mis- of mystical village in reality, she's trying to get him to meet and marry his daughter. Uh, but uh, Mike's spoiling South Pacific. He doesn't care. Uh, but anyway, this is the sort of mystical island that is promised in South Pacific. It's this land of enchantment where it's just on the horizon. You can see it from the island in South Pacific. It's like the other island in Lost Rob. Like mm-hmm. it's there. It's close by, but it represents this unattainable, magical place that you want to go to, that you want to be. It's this sort of mysticism and misting that is happening uh, by kind of singing about this haunting island that you should go to. Uh, and I think that that sort of thing is what the word and the title Bally High kind of has come to mean by the virtue of what, you know, what this song set up in the movie is, um, you know, just this, this great place that you would want to go uh, that is just outside the reach, not so distant, but always unattainable. Uh, kind of place that you can get to. And I think that that really, 
it, it really represents a lot of what's happening career-wise for Jimmy and Kim uh, in this episode. We see Kim getting this job offer, which we'll talk about. We see Jimmy in his sort of place of happiness that isn't really attainable, uh, and we see all that play out. So I think that that obviously the episode title is not on accident, and I think that there's a lot of symbolism there for sure. What do you think that represents? I mean, we end up seeing uh, Jimmy call and leave that message on her answering machine. And then ultimately, we do see Kim be receptive to Jimmy really for the first time in about three or four weeks where she ends up where she ends up getting. I'm not sure if you want to say stood up or whatever ends up happening to her at the restaurant where then she ends up calling Jimmy and they end up running a very similar scam to what they did back in the season premiere. Do you feel like that she has finally heated what uh, the siren song of Jimmy here? Yeah, it's uh, it's an interesting kind of point, right? Like Mike said that he thinks that Jimmy was channeling some of this misting that he's really trying to, you know, use... Like Dan, like Dan Giesling, like this is a, a kind of a siren song that he's trying to get like, you know, and and just like the woman in South Pacific to try to use these, uh, you know, enchanting kind of uh, enticements to get somebody to do what they ultimately want. And I think that that is whether that's directly what Jimmy's doing, like, oh, I'm going to sing you a song about using enchanting enticements to get somebody to do what they want uh, as an enchanting incitement to get you to do what I want. Uh, and I think that's pretty that's pretty much, you know, on the surface clear what's what Jimmy's doing. But I think that on a secondary level, Kim needs somebody. I mean, she's. She's really having a hard time at HHM. She's not sure that it's the right place for her. Howard is still giving her this terribly robotic, creepy, cold shoulder where he's not even talking to her while they're doing the West Wing walk and not talk throughout (laughs) HHM. Uh, And they end up in the conference room. And then he turns the robot smile on for those clients. And it's really weird. He's like, he's just a scary man, Howard Hamlin, in those scenes. And, And, you know, she's getting this job offer from Schweikert. And this is tempting. This is Temptation Island for her. And this is a thing where do I go off on this, you know, not so distant, but attainable thing? Maybe this is something that I can get to, like, maybe I can do it and this will work out better for me. And maybe the grass is greener on the other side. And Jimmy has already moved into that role. Like Jimmy has moved into this other job that is, you know, should be great for him where he's on partner track or he's got a lot more responsibility and he's a key member of these things. But the grass isn't greener for Jimmy, and he knows that in his day-to-day life. We see the show begins that way. He's having the insomnia issues. He can't sleep. He's not happy in the corporate life. He's only happy, Rob, when he ends up in that four by four like jail cell. His old, uh, his old, you know, room at the nail salon. Like it really is like a prison cell. That's where he's most comfortable. He's not comfortable in his new car. The coffee make the coffee thing doesn't fit. Uh, none of this this new life really fits for him. And so the grass really isn't greener on this you know magical island that he ends up at. Uh, but he tells Kim at the end of the episode, you know, like yeah, you should go for it. Like, you know, it it sounds so great. Like it just, I don't know what's not to love is ultimately what he says. And I think there's a lot there uh, subtextually about what's not to love. Jimmy is, we've seen throughout this episode showing us what's not to love. Uh, And it, it is not playing out well for him, but he's sort of encouraging Kim to go for it anyway. And I think that that's tough. Well, there's a lot to pick apart from what you just talked about. Let's uh, key in first on Jimmy in that first scene in the episode when he can't sleep and we see this long sequence of insomnia and ultimately he has to go back to the nail salon and pull out the folding couch and ends up sleeping there. 
What does that say to you that he's only happy in that slipping Jimmy type lifestyle that he had at the beginning of the series? Well, and I don't know if it says that so much as it says he's very unhappy in the corporate lifestyle. The, the ball, the bowl of balls, uh, you know, beautiful bed, like everything paid for working out perfectly. That's not the life for him that he didn't really feel like he earned that or made it. That's not his thing. That's not his happy place, Rob. He's got insomnia. And I mean, that's a pretty key thing. We had a question from Jeremy George emailed to us at BCS at postshowrecaps.com. As always, you can email us your questions at BCS at postshowrecaps.com. And Jeremy said, what is your go-to activity when you have insomnia? I got news for you, Rob. Mine's listening to podcasts. Oh, Uh, Yeah, poor Jimmy. He doesn't have that to rely on. What's yours? You know, I don't often get uh, struck with insomnia. Usually, at least at the beginning of the night, I can go to sleep uh, pretty much anywhere doing anything. Uh, I can fall asleep pretty easily, but sometimes I'll wake up at like three or four o'clock in the morning and then I can't go back to sleep. And, you know, I just start like just reading articles and things on my phone. And that's when I start to like think about like uh, all of like the my um, worst fears and stuff like that about how like what am I (laughs) doing with my life and things like that. So I mostly my insomnia activities are just like uh, a really deep dive into my innermost uh, insecurities and just reading Twitter and uh, articles. Oh, that's awesome. Oh, that yeah. sounds fantastic. Just being, you know, just freaking out. Yeah, that's great. No, I, uh, like I go through like, boy, I really should get like supplies here for if there's an earthquake, <laughs> like I really don't have things. I think about, should I get a gun? Uh, because I feel like, you know, if the apocalypse goes down, I feel like I should have one. And just like also the sorts of like uh, thoughts about just like uh, just fear. You think the apocalypse is likely to happen? What are we if you think if we get an apocalypse in the next five years, Rob, is it nuclear zombie? What's the most likely cause of this apocalypse? Uh, I just feel like maybe some sort of like the grid goes down and it's just anarchy. And then I feel like I'm going to really be kicking myself for not having the gun. I think. Are you going to sleep well tonight, Rob? I I usually sleep fine. I'm just telling you if I wake up at three or four o'clock in the morning, that tends to be where my head goes. Oh my gosh, this is the, the oh, this is not good. You need to have you need a happy place. You need to find your nail salon back room, Rob, yeah. and you need to be able to retreat there when these thoughts enter your head. The good news is I'm usually so tired I end up sleeping the whole way through. I mean, this is like uh, every so often. If I'm awake yeah, you, and I can't sleep, this is where my head is going. You're telling me that the cure for insomnia is to have ch- two children under the age of three. Is that right? <laughs> yeah. Okay, got it. Yeah, like there's often times when I can't sleep, but it's not because I can't fall asleep. It's usually because, you know, there's a person that's, uh, that's crying very loudly. Okay, well, that makes a lot of sense. For me, I don't know what causes my insomnia. I think my insomnia cure is sitting up trying to figure out what causes my insomnia. That just makes it worse. Mm-hmm. And like I said, my go-to is podcast. I've, I've had some issues in the last few weeks, Rob, and the podcasts haven't worked. So I'm going to try the uh, bucket of balls. And if that doesn't work, I'm going to break into a nail salon. So we'll see where I go with that. But yeah, I, I really think this is meant to represent that Jimmy is just not comfortable in his current life. Restless. I don't. Yeah, he's restless. I don't think it's so much is meant to say that he's only happy in the back of that nail salon. I just think by comparison, he's much happier there than he is in the Davis and Maine kind of life that he doesn't really feel that he should be in, that he probably truly is only in as a result of Kim, both her angling for him to get the job and for him not wanting to disappoint her. And I think that's a tough position for him to be in for sure. 
Well, he starts off the episode where he has insomnia in the first place, but then he catches this uh, Sandpiper commercial that's put forward by uh, Davis and Maine, and it's his idea, but it's the commercial that's basically, you know, a carbon copy version of the earlier commercial that they did that was really boring, and then he really can't sleep after that. The story sync asked a question, was he mad about that they did the commercial after all, or was he mad about that it lacked the style and uh, that he wanted for the commercial? What do you think about that? I think it's, I think if you had to ask me which one it's more of, I think it's more about the lack of style. I think he doesn't want to be associated with something so boring and straightforward. I think Jimmy sees himself as a much different kind of guy. Uh, he drops work immediately during the day uh, later on in the episode and goes right out to uh, run the con with Kim. And that's not only because Kim's involved, but that's because she also wants to do this thing. If Kim called and said, hey, let's work on the case, he'd probably still be interested. But that's where Jimmy's most alive is these kind of antics and these kind of stylish, panache-filled kind of interactions. And I think seeing this sort of boring, straightforward voiceover thing just made him feel like a total sellout and made him feel like his life was stripped away of any kind of uniqueness. He's living in a place that was decorated for him, uh, in a place that he has no kind of stamp on or signature about. And I think it's, it's funny. You point out he sees that commercial. He also sees the Star Spangled Banner playing on TV. Uh, and I, I'm reminded that, that that's almost like the beginning of a Saul Goodman commercial, that that sort of touch, mm -hmm. uh, the patriotism and the over-the-topness is something that becomes his hallmark going forward. I mean, he's got the blow-up Statue of Liberty for crying out loud, Rob. So, like, this is something that becomes his hallmark. These, these flourishes, the movie quotes, the uh, references to all these old things, singing from South Pacific, that, that's Jimmy McGill. That's, that's who he is. He's not the voiceover guy. Maybe, if you were a family member, is affected by mesothelioma you may be entitled to really that's not what he does like mm -hmm. that's not his thing he's the guy with panache so i think the style is more upsetting to him more than more than anything but you know it also it also shows how feckless he is at work because it doesn't seem to me that he was consulted on that commercial like it even though he's the alleged head of that department it doesn't seem to me that he had any feedback on that whatsoever and they ultimately went with everything they've done in the past so what is he really at work? Does he, he's being babysat. He can't do anything on his own. So it also represents, I think, this, he's not only unhappy in his position, but it's not even a good position. So I think this is really difficult for Jimmy in every way. All right, let's set up the Kim story from this episode, and then we'll circle back to when they ultimately meet back up in the episode. And we see that Kim has sort of escaped the purgatory in terms of the research department after her conversation with Chuck. And it seems certainly that Howard is not too happy about that. He's giving her the cold shoulder, as you mentioned earlier. But she ends up in the courtroom where she's litigating. Is that, Am I using the right terms, Antonio? Yeah, she's litigating. That's exactly what's happening. There's yeah. litigation going on there, Rob. Yeah, and she's uh, taking on the guys from Sandpiper who are arguing that they need to see the medical records, and she's saying that they don't want to give up the medical records, and they have a uh, an interesting conversation about you know the mental capacity of the Sandpiper residents, and ultimately it turns into where the judge is going to uh, rule against her, but she ends up with an admirer in Schweiger, who uh, likes her pizzazz. Yeah, and this is, uh, I, you know, this is something that we have to really 
kind of question uh, what's going on here. And I'm, I'm definitely interested in your take on this, Rob, because it, it, from a just without getting into the brass tacks of what's happening in court there, she is absolutely arguing what seems to be a uh, what seems to be a losing position. Not only does the show kind of make that clear where the opposing counsel argues like every case that's like this allows this. Uh, and this is not something that is, uh, you know, that, that there's, they should have any objection to. Um, they're basically just trying to determine whether the people that are, that are the name plaintiffs in this class action are actually representative of the class. Uh, and there are a few different things that without getting into the law on it that you have to evaluate of the name plaintiffs in a class action case. But as part of that evaluation, some of the looking into those plaintiffs is absolutely going to happen. It's not bullying. She brings up that buzzword, Rob. How did she know way back then that this would become a buzzword, bullying? They said this is not about bullying, Antonio. Oh, sorry. And sorry. I, I don't want to get into that. follow their lead on this. Okay. Yeah, that's a big, bad buzzword. I don't want to get into that. But but yeah, she, she makes a really good enough argument that the judge is persuaded to take a second look. And so it's entirely possible that... That are you know that Schweikert is is impressed with that. It's also possible, Rob, that even though he says on the surface, "Look, I'm not interested in getting any confidential information about the Sandpiper case." Oh no, 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 no. That's not what this is about at all. It's even though that he's saying that, it's also possible that that's entirely his goal in getting Kim hired at, at his firm. That that's why he wants her, as he wants to take that big bullet out of their chamber and get as much knowledge about this case as he can. Uh, and I think that that's kind of the struggle that Kim has to look at. Is he really interested in me because of who I am, or is he only interested in me because of where I work? And I think that that's a really, that's a not clear. I don't think this episode makes that clear at all. And I think that that's a struggle for her, among the other things that she's struggling. But do you sense that's where Schweigert is going with this? Uh, Rob, I don't trust lawyers as far as I can throw them. And for every lawyer that says, no, this is ethical and this is above the board and, you know, no, of course not. We're not, we're not, you know, this is not our goal. Like, that's what you say nominally. That's what you say on paper. But truly what your goal is, is absolutely that. And you're going to find every way you can to get around it without getting in trouble. And I think the idea would be you get her on. This is a long case, this Sandpiper case. You get her on board. Uh, she, you know, gets embedded in your firm. She becomes a member of your team. She's feeling good about it. Then, you know, you're not asking her. Maybe, maybe things slip out or uh, maybe she's such a member of your team that so, she just tells somebody else on the team, uh, you know, in uh, over drinks one day uh, about what she was doing at HHM. A Moscow that mule. That becomes part of it. A little, maybe a Moscow mule. She becomes a, a, a uh, HHM mule, if you will. Uh, a Hamlin, Hamlin, Hamlin and mule. Uh, like a main mule. Like that's what's happening. Um, I don't know. I think that that could, I think that that could be their goal. I just as an insider piece of information, I worked uh, in the job we've talked about a little bit in this podcast in this kind of high level litigation of people suing each other at really high levels. A lot of times there were non-competes or people that had been poached from other companies. And they always say that wasn't our goal, but the documents, the ideas, the things that were that people forgot and accidentally put in writing usually reveal a different story. So I don't trust Schweikert here at all. I really don't. Uh, is that not having that perspective? Is that your read or you think this guy's being on the level? See, that wasn't my read about that. I sort of took it at face value, but I'm really interested in terms of that second time we see her at the restaurant and what was going on there in terms of what their ultimate play was because I feel like the second time through that we see her at the restaurant we know that she has a a meeting that's going to be presumably with Schweiger back at the restaurant I mean she's drinking the Moscow mule which I feel like should be a tell 
and ultimately he's not there. Also, Howard seems to give her a task which probably would preoccupy her time at the point where she would be having that lunch. What did you make of just sort of the timing of Howard wants you to go through all of that and he needs this task done right away? Yeah, and I'm not sure Howard knows any of that. For me, I having been around big law kind of situations and people with massive egos that that kind of are just jerks about that. That's I think that's Howard micromanaging her or just kind of being like a a demagogue or like somebody who's just like, you know what I'm going to do? Uh I I'm pissed at her. I'm just going to pretend that I need something right away even though I don't. I'm going to tell her that I need this. I'm going to make her miserable. She's going to have to work through her lunch. I don't care if she had plans. I don't care what her life's going to be. I can't stick her in doc review cuz Chuck broke my balls a little bit about it, but I can still make her life miserable and I'm going to do that. And I really think that that's what's in play here. Part of the reason I think that's what's in play is he has someone else deliver the message. So that's the ultimate passive aggressive kind of move in a situation like that. And I really think that that is what's going on here, that he's just putting the screws to her just because he can and just because he's angry at her still uh, over the Jimmy thing and over, you know, maybe he has some reason to be angry at her because he put his neck out for her and he got it chopped off a little bit. But that, I think, is really what's in play more than anything. But as far as Schweikert goes, I don't know. Um, You said you think he was a little more on the level. We had an interesting question from Jason Riotmaker, who emailed us and said, how can we like a greasy lawyer like the one Saul becomes, yet despise a greasy lawyer like the one trying to entice Kim out of HHM? Are you despising Schweikert or seeing him as a bad guy? You're seeing him on the level. So you're not despising him, I guess, like Jason is. Well, I sort of like to story. Maybe, uh, you know, I'm just uh, kind of gullible in terms of it. It's like, oh, that makes some sense. That he's, you know, he was in this similar situation. And we see how poorly she's being treated at HHM. HHM and I say okay maybe they're going to treat her better I think that this feels like this would be a good move for Kim to get out of HHM because it's really I mean you have uh, where Howard's not even talking to her and if she can get a better offer I mean screw Sandpiper so what if they end up losing the Sandpiper case because Kim ends up switching teams yeah and I think that that is I think that's the other thing is that I don't know how much Schweikert knows about how you know Kim is the kind of person that can bring in a big client uh, like the, you know, the Costa Mesa bank or whatever we saw from last week. And we saw him again a little bit this week. I don't even know if he knows her abilities in that regard. So there is a possibility that he was impressed with her in court, uh, that he did a little digging into her. I mean, there's a reason he shows up in court there, even though he knows he's going to win. Uh, and that's not because his, his guy needs backup. That's the instance where his guy doesn't need any backup. He knows he's going to win. He's there anyway. And he's already done his homework on Kim coming into that motion. So it isn't like he heard her arguing that motion and was bowled over. My impression is, since he's already done his homework on her, he knows about her. He's in court on a day where he knows he's going to win anyway. I think he's there specifically with the goal of poaching her. The fact that Howard doesn't show up is something he can kind of pounce on and say, hey, you didn't even have backup in there today. Uh, and he can also just poach on the fact that Look, he knows she's probably overworked based on her experience in the firm. He knows she's probably somebody who maybe is looking for a different option uh, based on the fact that she's just been at the firm for a few years. And that would be the time someone was looking if they were looking. And he knows this is an opportunity to take a big bite out of this case. I just read that. I read the greasiness more uh, like Jason is than you do. But I don't know. I think this is a big story for Kim. And I think it is a grass is greener kind of story. And I do think it's one of those things where she could end up taking that job 
and and not really understand that the expectation is that she sell that sandpaper sandpiper case out as soon as she gets in the door. Uh, so I, I am I am tracking that a little bit. I don't think this is just a perfect offer with no possible strings attached. I think there's a I would be very concerned. The alarm bells will be going off in my head for sure. So my big question then is the second time that she's back at the restaurant, she is drinking that Moscow mule once again in the copper cup. But then no sign of Schweigert here. And she has his card and she has her phone. Was she supposed to meet up with him and did he no show or was she at the restaurant and was she just going to call him and say, hey, come on down here and meet me for a Moscow mule? What was your read on that? Yeah, I think it's more the latter. I think she was just there drinking. I think she got the drink because she was kind of trying on that life a little bit. You know, well, let me try to live that life a little bit of the the very specific drink at this very specific place. And uh, let me let me see if I like that. Let me try that on for size a little bit. And while she's sort of test driving it, she gets the idea, you know, maybe I'll give him a call and say I'm interested. Like, maybe I could live this life, the Moscow mule life, the Schweigert life. But before she does that, she gets a different idea. And the life she decides to try on instead is the Slip and Jimmy life. Uh, And I think she feels a little bit more alive and a little better in that moment when she sees the guy. And that's that's one that kind of hits her like unexpectedly. That's fate, if you will, because she sees the guy kiss a girl and put her in a Porsche and send her away, come back into the bar and order her a drink. And then she's like, wait a minute, like, who's this guy that just kissed a girl and sent her away? And now he's sending me a drink over. That's the slip and Jimmy opportunity presenting itself like in a neon sign right over that guy's head. And I, I think she feels like, okay, that's fate. I'm going to go for that. What did you think of that guy, Rob? Who did he look like to you? <laughs> you know, I thought he looked like a maybe Peter Dinklage's older brother. <laughs> like a big dink? Yeah. Well, he was a big dink and he looked like a big yeah. dink. Uh, and I say, you know, I didn't even think that thought aloud, but then I was on the Better Call Saul subreddit and I saw somebody had started a thread uh, with that. Uh, that guy looks like Peter Dinklage. So then I felt like, okay, it wasn't just me. Well, I thought he looked like a shrunken Timothy Oliphant from Justified, which we podcasted about uh, Josh Wiggler and I here at Post Show's Recapped uh, or Post Show Recaps. Yeah. And I thought, so I look like, I thought he looked like a shrunken Oliphant. So somewhere between Big Dink and Shrunken Oliphant is this guy. Uh, and he's, uh, he's a mark. She recognizes right away. She's like, I've got a live one on the hook. She recognizes he's a mark and that brings Jimmy back into her life and she's ready to call. And, you know, she's got a couple, maybe, maybe a couple Moscow mules in her. We know she's had at least one drink, probably two when she calls Jimmy at that point. And, uh, and Jimmy's back in the game. She's living the slip and Jimmy life. She's not living the Schweikert life. She's not living the HHM life. This is sort of life on the edge, the, the Jimmy McGill story. And Jimmy comes back into the story here. But just going back to when she was at HHM, she says that she has a lunch appointment. I mean, was that she just, does? Was she just saying like, hey, I got to go to lunch at two thirty. That's my sort of hard out. I just feel like that that implied that she was meeting somebody. Yeah, maybe I, I didn't get the I mean, I didn't get the I didn't think there was a strong implication that he was standing her up. I think she was looking at that card as though should I or shouldn't I? Should I make this call? Should I not? And I don't know if she had planned some me time at lunch to kind of mull over that decision. And that was what her plan was for her lunch appointment. So she tells her assistant or whatever, I've got a lunch appointment, meaning I'm not going to be in the office and I'm not going to be available. I don't want you to call me because I want my headspace clear as I'm mulling this offer over. So maybe her plan was just to go down there, have the Moscow mule, sit at the bar and try to decide what she wanted to do with the rest of her day. Uh, and I'm not sure if it was a plan to meet somebody or not. If it was, I don't think 
think it was supposed to be him because he never showed up and we never got the other shoe dropping on that. So I really don't think that he stood her up and I don't think that that's what the show was trying to convey. But yeah, she did say she had an appointment and she needed to be away. So I'm not sure what that plan was. But to me, I feel like that that would make sense if it was that she was going to go meet with Schweiger. She was going there to go tell him she was going to accept the job. She's ordering the Moscow mule and she's sitting there and waiting for somebody who never ends up coming. And then that sort of would make it make sense for her to say, you know what? This guy doesn't care about me either. This is the same stuff at a different firm. The only person who actually does care about me is Jimmy. And that's why she decides to call him at that point in time. Yeah, I mean, that's possible. Why I didn't have exactly the same read or a similar read is that when we when we do get the next morning scene with her and Jimmy, she basically says, I got a job offer. And, you know, I, I'm, you know, it's this and that and the other thing. And then she says what he says, what's not to love and all of it. That's the next morning. She doesn't say I had a job offer, but he stood me up and it didn't go anywhere. Mm-hmm. She's presenting as, as, as though it's still a decision that she has to make. They even offered to pay off my school loan, Jimmy. Like this is like how sweet of a deal it is. She's not saying, but then it fell through or then he didn't show up. Yeah. And so I don't know if she's lying to Jimmy in that moment or He's lying to herself. He's not being entirely truthful with her either in terms of that like oh yeah you should definitely do that everything is going great also for me at davis and maine so i don't know if you know they're also playing poker with each other and there's some sort of a well i mean that they're not like running as some sort of a you know scam on each other yeah it's a good it's a good question johnny de silvera had asked us should or will kim take rick rick's job offer and i think that that's a question that we we leave unanswered as to whether she will take it into the next couple of episodes i think that this is a i think without realizing it rob we're seven episodes or six episodes into the season here now and what we've seen throughout the season as we talked about a little earlier on this podcast is this is as much a season of Kim as it is a season of Jimmy and it is as much a season about Kim not fitting into her job as it is a, a season about Jimmy not fitting into his job and i think we have you know kind of moments of truth coming up for the both of them before the end of this season uh, and i think Kim's is coming a little more directly into focus by seeing that she has another job offer on the table, the will she or won't she is sort of directly unanswered as we end this episode. I think Jimmy's is a little more indirect, and I think we get a little more of, I think, an inclination of Jimmy's methodology going forward at, at Davis and Maine with his incident with the crowbar and the cup holder. And I think that that is something that is, to me, fairly telling because the cup holder in the car are represented uh, a representative of his Davis and May life. Uh, he says it. I'm so happy to have a single colored car uh, instead of, you know, a car with uh, one different colored door and the, you know, the rest of it. He's very happy about this, Rob, but the cup holder doesn't fit his, the, the his one accoutrement that Kim gave him the yellow mug uh, that says world's a second best lawyer or whatever, uh, or world's best lawyer. Uh, you know, it just doesn't fit. It doesn't fit in this new lifestyle. Uh, and he's not happy about that. Every time he gets in the car, it frustrates him. So eventually what does he do? He takes the crowbar to the thing. That's the big end of the episode moment as he rips his new car apart uh, to make his life fit into it. What did that scene mean to you, Rob? Ripping that cup holder up in his new company car and making 
making that cup fit into it with a with the tire iron. Well, I think that the key phrase that you keep using is uh, fitting in. How is he fitting in over at Davis and Main? Is he fitting in? And we kept seeing him being that sort of square peg in the round hole, or I guess in this case, it's more of a round peg in a square hole, and it's just not fitting. And then we see him take that jack out of the back seat of the car, the trunk of the car, and then literally rip the cup holder out so that he'll end up fitting in. So I don't know what that necessarily means moving forward. If he's going to have to just sort of like uh, make his own way to make himself fit at Davidson, Maine, or maybe he's realizing that there is no fit for him at Davison, Maine. Yeah, Dave Hunter, uh, Rob's. That's uh, do that. Dave Hunter had asked. Uh, yeah, that Dave asked, "What's not to love besides each other? Does the cup holder represent and a square peg and round hole and the relations between Jimmy and Kim?" And I think that we have to remember, Kim gave him the coffee mug. Uh, Jimmy probably is the coffee mug in this scenario, as you're saying. If the uh, if Jimmy if it's about Jimmy not fitting in at Davis and Maine, and the car represents the Davis and Maine life, then Jimmy, that yellow coffee mug, yellow is Jimmy's color, doesn't fit into that Davis and Maine card. That doesn't fit into that life. But he says, you know what? I'm going to take a tire iron to this, and I'm going to make it fit. I'm going to make it fit by destruction. And I think that that's the that's what I'm wondering about going forward, Rob. Does Jimmy find a way to make Davis and Maine work for him by being Jimmy at Davis and Maine to the best that he can uh, and still not get fired? Or does he not care about ruining his his Davis and Maine life and just take a tire iron to everything? Does it become a chimp with the machine gun? And is that what we're going to see going forward with Jimmy at Davis and Maine? I think that that's a I mean, I think the show ends that way very specifically for a reason. I think that's the symbolism they're trying to impart i think the music that's used that cue there uh, is very much kind of like a i don't know that there's a little bit of manic kind of nature to it that things are about to pick up here that jimmy maybe is about to take a tire iron to his davis in main life and i think that that's what i expect to see for jimmy the rest of the season here uh, going forward is taking some action that's maybe going to cause jimmy some problems at davis and main yeah and i think that when you look at him as the person and we talk about this idea of square peg in the round hole or round peg in the square hole you have Jimmy, who, you know, we've seen him in various different looks throughout these two seasons of this show. And now you have him in this, you know, really fancy sort of temporary housing in that one color car. And it's just not fitting. It's not taking he's not able to go back to sleep until the point where he goes back to the nail salon and is back on that fold out couch. And that's when, okay, finally I'm comfortable again here. And I wonder if he's not only just rejecting him at Davis and Maine, but also this entire lifestyle. And the one thing that I noticed from the previews is that he's wearing like really crazy different color suits next week. And I wonder if that's going to be like he just he can't even dress the part anymore. He's that person. He just has to be to make himself feel comfortable. He has to dress like however he wants to dress. Yeah, I think that that's right. I think he wants, you know, he wants to be the. We talked about how what we're seeing on Better Call Saul really, truly is uh, this sort of uh, unbridled 
kind of battle uh, between like the id and the superego and the ego of Jimmy McGill uh, and seeing how that all is playing out. And I think he just cannot keep, um, he, you know, maybe there's a superego in play trying to moralize his decisions or whatever it is. And maybe there's, you know, this organized, uh, you know, realistic kind of thing that's happening with the ego. But his id, Rob, is just so unrestrained. Like he cannot keep these like instinctual things that are, you know, just so natural that he wants to do the slip and Jimmy of it all. He can't keep that slip and Jimmy uh, under wraps. He cannot that he's just designed like it, it's dying to burst forth through every pore, uh, whether that manifests itself in how he dresses, the commercials he makes, how he interacts with people, the briefs he writes, the speeches he gives, whatever it is. He cannot be square pegged into a round Howard hole. It can't happen. <laughs> like it just is not like it's not what he wants. Like this is not you cannot control the id of Saul Goodman. Like you can't do it. Uh, and that's really what this show show i think more than anything is about is that he has these just i don't know what you want to call them urges or just this very natural set of instinctual trends or traits about his personality that he just cannot keep under the surface for very long it keeps it literally keeps him awake at night rob uh trying to do that and trying to round howard his way in there so i think it's tough Round Howard Hamlin. Yeah. <laughs> you know, uh, while we're on the subject of different uh, looks, at least for Jimmy, can I talk about something that maybe is sort of a crackpot theory? I don't know how much you subscribe to color theory in yes. Breaking Bad Universe and in Better Call Saul. But one of the things that I've sort of picked up on is in terms of Kim that, her color is blue. And I think yes. it's specifically this royal blue. Yeah. I think she's wearing the Kansas City Royal shirt in this episode. She's right. wearing a a blue uh, kind of uh, like not quite a pantsuit, but she's wearing a blue sort of blazer at one a point in this episode. I agree. Blue is her color. So what does that represent to you? See, I'm not exactly sure, but I did notice just how striking that royal blue color was on her. And then you're right. I couldn't help but notice that she's wearing that Kansas City Royals shirt. And I think that there's just something going on there. And not only that, that, you know, I tend to watch these shows with the closed captioning on because it tells you uh, certain things or I want to make sure I get a line correctly, even though the closed captioning doesn't always get it right. But the song that played at the end of the episode also, according to the closed captioning, was a song by the Royals at the end of the episode. And between the Kansas City Royal shirt and the Royal Blue and the music by the Royals, which I have to say is not a band that I'm extremely familiar with. I, I do feel like that there's something being said there. I feel like that those three things can't be a coincidence. Yeah, I think you're, you're onto something. I mean, blue as a color generally can represent ice and, and coolness. Uh, red is the, usually the opposite of that, representing hot. And there was a, uh, some of that in, in the first season of Better Call Saul, for sure, uh, that a lot of the good characters are the good people in the show. We're usually seeing them wearing blue. Uh, and some of the warmer colors, the hot colors in the show uh, are red or, or some kind of color like that. Um, and I think that you, you know, there were, we, there was, I think that was talked about last summer after the first season aired of Better Call Saul. Uh, there was the red versus blue kind of color theory that people were talking about. Um, I think the Kettlemans were somebody when they first showed up, they were wearing kind of like these really blue kind of dull colors. Uh, but you know, when they're, when they're obviously more guilty, they start wearing these hotter colors. Uh, I, I remember reading about that. So I, I think color theory is alive and well. 
in in in, in Better Call Saul. I yeah. really do. It's certainly alive and well on this podcast, Rob. We're getting into the music cues yeah. uh, for crying out loud, but it, it's definitely alive and well. And but this was a very prevalent thing in Breaking Bad as well. Jimmy has said a lot of the time. Uh, that yellow is his color. I pick that. He says when something is is yellow. Uh, we've seen him, you know, with the yellow kind of drab yellow car uh, that he had. We've seen his coffee mug is yellow. So yellow is is a Jimmy color for certain. Uh, but I think that the red color is something we're going to be on the lookout for with Jimmy because if Kim's wearing blue a lot, the opposite shade to that, the hot shade, whereas blue is cool, uh, is red. And red is is fire. And red is the, this kind of uh, alive alive kind of thing. So I think if you wanted to plant a flag here, Rob, I'd say let's look at Jimmy wearing oranges and reds going forward. Uh, and if we're doing, if we are seeing Jimmy in the new wardrobe next episode, if he's picking out a lot of reds, or if there are a lot of bright, warm colors in his wardrobe, that would be a contrast to Kim wearing the blue. Yeah. Uh, and I think that that could say Jimmy's the hothead. Jimmy's the one who's getting them into trouble. Kim is the cool reasoned type. Uh, and maybe we're going to see a point where Kim starts wearing red, Rob. And maybe that'll be the point where Jimmy has pulled her too far into the dark side. I don't know. I'm not sure that's where it's going to me that more so than the color is just the significance of that word royal, where we saw her wearing the Royals shirt. And I do think that, that maybe there is some regalness uh, to Kim. And I'm wondering if she is maybe kind of like the uh Kim Lisi, I'm not sure exactly what the right, <laughs> right phrase is, but I wonder if that uh, the show is painting her to be some sort of like the queen or the person who really is the person who is the lawyer who is going to, uh, you know, with the good heart, uh, who is going to eventually the one who's go- who is destined to have this pure legal career, unlike Jimmy. Yeah, it, it's a good question because Hamlin, Hamlin, and McGill's color is Hamlindigo blue. So blue is their color as well. Uh, the, the car door on Jimmy's, you know, two-toned color car was red. Uh, and so maybe there is just a direct kind of difference that you're in play there that the Hamlin is this royalty the 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 upper crust the 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 top of the top and uh the opposite of, and that is represented by Kim's royal blue that she is meant to live in that lifestyle that that is what she represents and that Jimmy is is more of a red kind of guy that he's more of a warm kind of guy um he wears red a lot throughout season 1 I know uh he was you know we, when he was in prison he wore a red jumpsuit uh I remember that and I remember the red car door so I think that the the fact that blue is a royal color like that and is a color that represents sort of the HHM kind of lifestyle that H ham Lindigo blue. Uh, and it's not Jimmy's color. I think that those two things, uh, and it is Kim's and it is regal. I think that also shows Jimmy as again, there these two star crossed lovers, if you will, mm-hmm. um, are, are diametrically opposed in that way as well. That Jimmy's the red, it's the fire. Jimmy's the fire and Kim is the ice. Jimmy, Kim is the Royal and Jimmy is, Jimmy is the red. Like this is the, you know, the outsider, the fire, the kind of violence that comes into play there. So I think that those two things are opposites for sure. And I think they're being positioned that way. And just to add to that, this is from a interview that was done on amc.com uh, with Reese Seahorn, uh, who plays Kim Wex and uh the question which she kind of dodges uh is asked to her and they ask her uh during your chat on twitter you revealed that blue is kim's signature color much like purple was marie's signature color on breaking bad did you have any input into choosing kim's color or was that solely a decision by costume designer jennifer bryan uh do you have a signature color in real life 
Uh, and she talks about, oh, it's so great to work with Jennifer. She's creative. She's brilliant. And she says, there was no sitting down with me, but I do remember being in a lot of blues, how they are used in respect to the characters symbolically. I'm not sure yet, uh, but Jennifer is so in tune with helping her to tell a story. It's all about storytelling for her. And she says she wears a lot of earth tones in real life. So again, just like in Breaking Bad, they never sort of explain, oh, Marie is in purple all the time because of this. I don't think we're ever going to get a clear answer, but there is some significance to her being in blue. No, and I, and I should add, I thought about this a little bit this week because we had an email sent to us from Jamie to BCS at postshowrecaps.com asking us about, does Better Call Saul have color schemes? And that's when I, I mean, I know that I've noticed the yellow with Jimmy and I know that the the fire and ice thing is real. Like that is something that if you go back and look at, for example, the desert scene that we talked about a little bit in this episode between Tuco and everything that happens in season one, episode two, Nacho uh, is wearing a blue shirt and Tuco is wearing a red shirt. And Nacho's arguing for the side of let's be cool, let's play this cool, let's calm this down. And Tuco is the one that's red hot about it. So, like, that is something that's more on the nose about this sort of thing. But I think you're onto something with saying the Kim and the blue and the royal color, the royalty of that. I think that's in opposition to red. And I think what I would mark going forward is how much we see the color red with Jimmy. Mm-hmm. Uh, and just Jimmy, does, does he mix it with yellow? Uh, because red, of course, also means stop and yellow means caution. So, are those kind of the colors in play? there uh, or is it more just a red versus blue fire and ice thing just straightforward that they're going to show that Jimmy has this fiery part of his personality that puts him in opposition to Kim's more cold kind of regal above it all kind of personality where she's going to take the high road and try to do the right thing Jimmy's down there on the ground rolling around in the dirt uh, being violent with the red so Mm -hmm. that's something I would definitely track going forward and just the fact that this is a show that takes place in Albuquerque, New Mexico, which geographically not super close to Kansas City. I'm not sure what Kim's background is on the show. I just felt like that that was really striking to me to have her wearing the shirt that said Royals across the front. Yeah, I, me too. I like the Royals a whole lot. I always have. And uh, I, I've liked I, I used to like them more. Yeah, I understand, Rob. I understand. It's funny because the, the time when they were first in my radar was the Missouri World Series where they played against the Cardinals. And that was a blue versus red mm-hmm. kind of thing. So that's sort of something that uh, they've been on my radar. I apologize. I forgot it. The wound is still wide open. I apologize, <laughs> Rob. I forgot guy but of course that royals t-shirt stood out to you an opening day is right around the corner it's a rematch yes of course that royals t-shirt stood out to you rob that makes a lot of sense now you're like what is she doing wearing a royals t-shirt eight years ago yeah i can't help but notice it yeah what does she really like prospects i don't understand yeah all right well yeah in 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 the year 2000 or whenever whatever this is yeah that's what i'm saying yeah eight years ago yeah eight years ten years ago who's rooting for the royals rob come on yeah like, oh boy, Carlos Beltran seems like he's going to be somebody. Yeah, yeah, we better trade him. <laughs> <laughs> well, you watch. He's going to be rookie of the year one day. You'll he's, see. That's right. right. He's going to be mayor. <laughs> All right. Uh, if we have a Carlos Beltran appearance uh, in Better Call Saul, that would be really something. Okay. That would be uh, Antonio, what else from this episode? I, I mean, I really just, uh, I really think we we covered a lot of what I wanted to talk about. I 
I'd loved seeing Mrs. Nguyen again. Jimmy's just kind of, uh, she just doesn't, she will not, Jimmy's charm does not work on her at all. Not in the least. Not for a drink of water, not for a private moment, not for a hug, not for anything. That nail salon, she runs that place and wants no part of Jimmy, even though he's paid up. So what she's, I love, she said, do you lose that job already? Like she knows what he's about. She sees right through him. Anytime we can get her back. I, I have a feeling they're finding ways to put her back on the show because she's so great, <laughs> kind of breaking Jimmy's balls a little bit. So I really love seeing that for sure. Yeah. All right. So any other questions uh, that we got from the listeners this week? Uh, Travis Payne wanted to know um, how many casuals we think are out there that are confused by the show name because Saul is not in the show at all. Uh, He says, is it fan fiction to believe that there's people watching this that are not fans of Breaking Bad? Where do you fall on this, Rob? Do you think that you could watch and enjoy this show? I know we have several people who are listening to this podcast, as we talked about earlier, who aren't who didn't see Breaking Bad? Do you feel like having not seen Breaking Bad? Are you are you enjoying Better Call Saul nearly as much when someone like the cousins show up this week? Does it have any meaning to you at all? Or are you just like, oh, two menacing guys showed up, no big deal? Yeah, it's a good point in terms of like some of these things that are really significant to us because we know who these people are. I think you certainly lose a lot, especially with this whole Mike storyline. I think that you are enjoying the Jimmy storyline pretty much just as much as we are. But in terms of the Mike storyline, I think that's probably where you're having the biggest drop off of, you know, knowing the significance of Mike and his granddaughter. And now what's going on here uh, with Hector, uh, with Tuco, with the cousins. So I think that and eventually, you know, that story could go in a direction where you have Gus involved with that storyline. So I think that you're missing out in that regards. But in terms of the greater Chuck, Jimmy, Kim, Howard, I don't think there's very much of a drop off at all if you didn't see Breaking Bad. Yeah, and I, I think that that's true. And I think it's interesting because the show's called Better Call Saul, but we're getting so much of these other characters now. And that's great. I mean, I, I we talked a lot on this podcast about how that's fine. Uh, Nikki Nickish had also observed maybe the show should be called Better Call Mike and maybe then maybe Better Call Kim. Then maybe Saul if he's around. And I think that that's, that's you know, there's a lot of value in building these characters up. Uh, but I'm not sure that people appreciate everything obviously having not seen breaking bad but i'm glad people are still enjoying the show certainly thankful that they're listening uh, and i'm glad that there's room for that uh, i i had a couple other things pj in albuquerque pj is our ground kind of representative on the ground in albuquerque and pj said mike's house in a da- is in a downtown neighborhood which looks cute but is not safe uh so that's where mike's house is situated uh in the actual filming of of the better call saul but that made me think about a question that I had that I wanted to ask you that was on the story sink. When Mike pistol whips the guy and he kind of gruffly gets him out of his house, he doesn't seem to be taken aback by that scene at all. He's totally in control. He's not scared. If anything, he intimidates them. But then when we see him washing the gun off, his hand is shaking and he has to grab it to Good stop point. that. Is he shaking it in fear? Is that is that fear, Rob, or is that anger? What was your read on that? What do you think we're we're meant to think about Mike's mentality about finding himself in these situations? I think that the significance was supposed to be that they're showing us that Mike actually is afraid. He's not going to verbalize that, but I think that he is afraid that these guys got into his house. And you do see, like on the refrigerator, the drawings that Kaylee made. So I think that potentially that's what it was. What was your take on it? Yeah, I think the same thing. I think. He's a little frightened and nervous. I mean, we have to keep in mind, and this is where the reason I wanted to bring this up now is 
this is where our knowledge of Mike, I think, kind of does put us in a difficult spot because the Mike we know is Batman. Like that Mike is like not intimidated or scared by anything. Uh, he can totally like maybe he turned his fear into something where he's just sort of has this preternatural ability to like, you know, smell the trouble before it comes around the corner most of the time. Uh, and that that is not necessarily the Mike uh, at the beginning of this series. It's tough with Jonathan Banks. We've talked about how maybe he and the son need to part ways. He looks older uh, as Mike than he did as Mike in Breaking Bad. I think that's difficult. And they're not even trying. They're not putting a wig on the guy. They can't make him look younger. He knows that. They know that. Uh, and so it's a little more difficult of a character transition to not see him as the same thing. And I think it's important not to gloss over these little moments like this where not only has Mike taken a half measure, uh, which is not necessarily a Mike that we know from Breaking Bad thing to do, but Mike is also, I think, a little scared by what's happening. Uh, and he's, he's, in, he's in a little bit over his skis. Yes, he was a cop, but I don't know that Mike's ever been in the positions that Mike's finding himself in uh, as a result of this, this half measure that he takes. We know by the time Breaking Bad rolls around that he's been through the ringer a million times, but we're seeing him go through the ringer for some of the first times here in Better Call Saul. So it's very natural, I think, that even Mike, even Batman, would be a little scared about what he's experiencing. I love, though, that he grabs his own hand and says, stop. You know, don't be afraid. You can't give in to that feeling. Like you need to just focus and be intense and be in the moment. And I really like seeing Mike talk himself down off of that fear ledge. I think that's a really cool character moment for him. My pick tonight for the worst moment on Better Call Saul Story Sync. Uh, there was a poll question <laughs> when Jimmy walked out and he got the phone call from Kim and said, Oh, it's my grandma. I got to go. She's old. Uh, the question was bailing on Aaron, like it or love it? Yeah, and love it was the negative choice. I didn't understand that question at all, Rob. I voted for love it. Did you vote for love it? I voted for like it because I felt like that the least amount of people, and it was like 88 to 12, uh, 88% to 12 for people to say love it. Yeah, stick it to Aaron, <laughs> trying to make Saul follow the rules. How dare she? Yeah. That, that harpy. How dare she do Where that? Does she get off. Yeah. So I, I don't know. I, I think that that, uh, you're right. That was a very low point <laughs> for the, for the story sync this week. I'm glad. I, I love it when you highlight these moments, Rob, because <laughs> let's be real. Story sync brings a lot to the table, but not, not every <laughs> single thing on story sync brings something to the table. Yeah. Sometimes it's like, uh, they're really just trying to make something out of nothing. Okay. Sometimes it's story stink. That's for sure. <laughs> All right. Any other questions? No, no, I, I think that pretty much covers it. Uh, Scott St. Pierre tweeted at us, and the great Scott St. Pierre, thank you, Scott, for all the hard work, uh, said, not an episode to work and watch at the same time. I keep having to rewind to see what happened. I think that's a hallmark of a good show, Rob. Yeah, well, we keep Scott very busy. Yes, well, we do. And I'm sorry, Scott, you know, apologize. I'm, I'm glad I'm glad you're getting to watch it all. Yes, and hopefully he hasn't had any Moscow mules before he edits this podcast. Well, if he does, Rob, we'll only get the best of us, that's for <laughs> sure. We're only going to get the A-plus material coming through if Scott's a little liquored up when he edits this one up. <laughs> never, never. He's a professional. Never. He wouldn't do that. No, he would not. All right. What are some hashtag ideas, Antonio? Oh my gosh. You said Kim Lisi. I like that. I liked, I liked when I said round Howard Hamlin. That gives me funny thoughts in my head of Josh uh, <laughs> seeing that on Twitter and not knowing what it means. What else? What do you have? You also said earlier the uh, walk and not talk. Yes, the walk and not talk. Yeah, the famous walk and not talk. That uh, that had definitely happened. I I think we should. I, I wish I hadn't said story sink or story stink so late in this podcast because that would have been a good one. Uh, <laughs> I don't know. What do you like? Walk and not talk. You like round Howard Hamlin. 
Uh, we can go with walk and not talk. Yeah, walk and walk and not talk is fun. Yeah, walk uh, and not talk. All right, Antonio. Next week we'll be back with Better Call Saul episode seven recap. Yes, seven, eight, nine, ten. So what? Only three more episodes to go, Rob, before the finale. <laughs> yeah, the classic AMC gag. Only three episodes left before the finale. Yeah. All right. So we've got a lot to talk through. Of course, uh, send in your better call Saul questions. You can send them in all week. Doesn't matter. Uh, BCS at postshowrecaps.com. You can also subscribe to the podcast. Go to postshowrecaps.com slash BCS iTunes. We also appreciate it when you leave us feedback and star ratings on our iTunes page because it helps more and more people find the podcast postshowrecaps.com slash BCS iTunes. All right. Yeah, that's great. Antonio. Boy, uh, we got so much other stuff going on right now on Post Show Recaps. Antonio mentioned that uh, we recapped Hap and Leonard uh, on most shows recap this weekend. You really love the Hap and Leonard. I like the Hap and Leonard. It, look, for it's a six-episode show that's airing on Sundance TV. It's They just aired episode three. Episode four will air this week. Uh, it's a fun show. You can listen to our full breakdown on our weekly show, Most Shows Recap. We talked about kind of the setup and everything. But, I, I mean, I really like Michael K. Williams, who played Omar on The Wire. I really like Christina Hendricks, who was Joan on Mad Men. You put the two of them on the same show, and you set it in sort of the swamplands in the South in the 1980s, and you give it a justified style vibe. I'm all in. All right. Also, we just finished covering our 13 episodes of House of Cards, but uh, Josh Wiggler and Kevin Mahadeo just getting started covering the 13 episodes of Daredevil season two. Oh my gosh, Rob. I Before Better Call Saul tonight, I finished episode nine of Daredevil and I am all in. I'm hooked. Wow. Yeah. What, what, what did we do, Rob, before, they, before Netflix gave us shows to watch 13 episodes of in four days? That I don't know. <laughs> we interacted with our loved ones, I think is the answer. So, but yeah, yeah, yeah I, I'm loving the Daredevil. I can't, I'm, I'm, I'm so excited about their daily podcast. They're going to drop a podcast every weekday, Rob. So oh my God. one episode, they started with episode one's already up. Episodes two, episode two's coming out tomorrow. One a weekday. Those guys are crushing it. Plus uh, all of our Walking Dead coverage as well, all on postshowrecaps.com. Uh, check it out if you are so inclined. We will be back next week to talk about more Better Call Saul. Thank you guys so much uh, for listening. We got a lot of great feedback uh, this past week and it does not go unnoticed or unappreciated by Antonio or myself. Absolutely. Love the feedback. Love the engagement. Love talking to you guys on Twitter or on our comments page or on Facebook or wherever about this show and the other shows that we talk about here at Post Show Recaps. All right. Love to hear what you guys think on postshowrecaps.com. Have a good one. Follow Antonio on Twitter. He's at AC Mizarro. That is two Z's, one R. I'm at Rob Sister. Talk to you next week. Bye.